Welcome to the Knox Podcast, featuring a sermon from the Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Kenmore, New York. For more information about Knox Church, visit our website at knoxepc.com or email us at office at knoxepc.com. To request prayer, send an email to pastor at knoxepc.com. Let's open our Bibles today to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, located on page 60 in your pew Bible. We're going to read the first seven verses today. Please rise as God's Word is read to you. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. May God bless this reading today. Please have a seat. When I was a kid, every time I heard the story of Moses and confronting Pharaoh, I always thought that that sounded a little too much like when me and my brothers would go up to our mom with an unreasonable request. And my mom would always hold up a hand and say, I don't want to hear about it. And so whenever I hear this story of Moses going to Pharaoh, saying, let my people go, I always picture Pharaoh like my mom holding up her hand and saying, I don't want to hear about it. Go clean your room. Do something productive with your life. I've mentioned before that being a prophet of God was simultaneously the best job and the worst job ever. It was the best job because you got to work directly for the Almighty. How many people can directly say in the Old Testament that they took their marching orders straight from God? You got to bring God's message to the people. You felt like your life had purpose. Sometimes you got to do miracles. That must have been really cool. And sometimes you got to write books of the Bible. All right, those are the perks, but the the downsides of being a prophet were immense. And one of the biggest downsides was that nobody liked the messenger bringing the message. They tended to shoot the messenger, sometimes literally with arrows. They would shoot the messenger because God would be sending the message of repentance to kings and queens and countries and saying, you're going the wrong way, turn around and obey me, and people didn't want to hear it. More often than not, they wanted to follow their hard hearts instead. And hard hearts are at the center of this passage today that we're looking at when we look at this confrontation between God's prophet Moses and this mighty king of Egypt. God tells Moses in advance, he says, this man, this Pharaoh, will not listen to you. And he tells you why. Right there in the beginning of chapter 7, God said, you are to say everything I command to you, And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of the country 
but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and my wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Now this verse, we're going to stop and we're really going to look at it because out of the entire book of Exodus, this one verse, chapter 7, verse 3, tends to be the most controversial. The one that causes a lot of readers to stumble, a lot of people to take a step back and even question God and go, is God in the wrong here? Is God taking somebody's free will and effectively saying, no, I'm going to force you to do evil. I'm going to harden your heart. I'm going to stop you from obeying my commands. And so when we read this phrase that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, we don't know what to make of it. We don't know if God is truly being cruel or unjust in this moment, if he's being unfair. What does it even mean to harden somebody else's heart? And I want to concentrate on that today because I think this is an important uh, lesson to learn, not just to calm the tension in our own hearts when we come to the book of Exodus, but to look at how God deals with our hearts, the hearts of sinners, and how it actually ends up being a really good message for us in the gospel. So I'm going to ask for your patience today. I'm going to ask for your patience because I'm going to take you on a journey to explain this verse. And it has to be a journey. And so it's not going to make sense at first, and you're just going to have to go with it. I know what you're thinking. Pastor Justin, most of what you say doesn't make sense, but that's okay. <laughs> to, to diffuse the tension, to unwrap the mystery of God hardening the heart of Pharaoh, we have to look at one of the fundamental truths of the Bible as our starting point. That one of the fundamental truths of the Bible is that we are not just sinners, but that sin is so invasive, so pervasive, and so corruptive in our lives that there's absolutely not a single part of your life that is untouched by sin. Not your body, not your soul, not your will, not your heart, not your relationships. Nothing in your life is unaffected by sin. And this is something the Bible drills down. It's, it, it can't be more clear. We might have somebody say, well, yeah, but sin isn't really that bad, or people are basically good. I mean, these phrases we hear often, and that puts us at a starting point that's very different than what the Bible wants us to start at. I want to read to you five quick verses that speak to the heart of sin and the Bible's approach to what sin is. Genesis 6.5 says, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Jeremiah 17.9, great verse. This is one of those you should memorize verses. 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is desperately sick. John 8.34, Everybody who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 3.10, No one is righteous. No, not one. And Romans 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You see how hardline, hardcore the Bible is about sin and how utterly corruptive it is in our life. That every heart is bent toward evil. 
because of sin. It is desperately sick, is a slave, is incapable of following God. This is where the Bible starts. This is our starting point. It reminds me of a, a long time ago, back when iPods first came on the scene. And I, I don't know if you remember getting your first iPod or music player. I remember getting mine. I loved this thing. I carried it around. It's like $400. They were so expensive. I bought one. I carried it around everywhere. I was listening to all the music. And then one day, I don't know how this happened exactly. My wife still laughs at me for this. But I was doing dishes in the kitchen. And somehow, I knocked my iPod into a giant pot of sudsy water. I was leaving the pot to soak overnight. And on top of that, I got a bonus because my iPod got to soak overnight in this giant sudsy thing. And so when I discovered it the next day, and I took this iPod out, I knew right away that it was trash. That there was no part of this iPod. I couldn't just like rinse it out. I couldn't just blow dry it. Every single part of this had been saturated by that soapy water. It had soaked deep into every circuit and all the components. It was just trash. And this is the Bible stance on our hearts. It says, when you are born a sinner, sin soaks into you. It's not just on a surface layer. It is down deep into every part of you. You've been soaking in sin, not just overnight, but for your entire lives. And because of that, there's no spot in our life left untouched by it. But you say, God says in the Bible, he gives us free will. So I could choose to do good. Well, think about what free will is, really. Free will is being able to choose the desires of your heart and following the desires of your heart. But what if your heart, as the Bible says, is inclined to evil all the time, is desperately sick all the time, is fully full of sin all the time? Then your free will is only and ever going to choose the path of sin. And that's where it's going to lead you. So when God calls us to repent in the Bible, He's not calling us just to say sorry. He's asking us to confront this truth about what sin is in our life and how much it has affected us. That we have sinned against God consciously, we have sinned against Him unconsciously, we have sinned with our bodies, with our minds, with our relationships, with everything in our life. We have sinned against God. It's so deep. And so when we are turning around to repent to Him, He says, are you willing to face that truth? Are you willing to face how serious sin is? Are we? Or are we just going to keep justifying it and keep saying, well, it's really not that bad? All right. Well, if sin is so awful, so pervasive, so corruptive, it's soaked into every part of your life, then the logical next question is, then how are we capable of doing anything in our life that's not sin? I know you're wondering, where is he going with this? Where's Pharaoh? We'll get there. How can we do anything that's not sin in our life if sin has soaked into every part of us? A number of years ago, there was a very memorable campaign by an ad campaign by atheists in England. And they rented out many billboards. They rented out many double-decker buses. And they plastered them with this one phrase. And I thought it was, I didn't agree with it, but it was very memorable. And the phrase was, around Christmas time, they put this phrase, they said, you can be good without God this season. You can be good without God this season. And you understand the argument behind that. They look around, they say, you don't need God to be good. You can just go be good. 
Go do good things. Now, who's calling the shots on what's good and bad? It's up to you. It's very relative in this day and age. But they were making this point that there are many non-believers in this world that are capable of great acts of charity and love and kindness. And so if we're truly bad and we're truly sinful, if we really need God to show us the way, how can that be possible? How can people do good, objectively good things without God? Well, the answer to that, we have an answer in the Bible too. We have an answer for that. And the answer plays into our journey. So the answer to this is something theologians call the common grace of God. I don't know if you've ever heard this. I think it's one of the most wonderful things about God. That God loves us so enormously. His loving kindness is so great that he looks down upon the world, upon an entire world of people who have rebelled against him. And he says, I will still bless them. I will still, out of the goodness of my heart, the goodness of my joy, as a father, I will pour blessing upon all people. And so the Bible tells us, in fact, Matt, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.45 that God makes the sun rise on the evil and the righteous alike. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. That God, while he dishes out, doles out a lot of gifts, they are gifts given to everybody, whether or not they believe in God. And so in the world, the common grace of God has blessed all people with relationships, friendships, marriage, moments of happiness, financial prosperity, health. All these are good gifts of God that he, does, he gives to everybody. And the reason I bring this up is one of the greatest gifts of common grace that God gives to people as a restraining hand on the life of the sinner. Now, the image I want you to get in your, your head this morning, and I'm sure you've seen one, is the image of a dam. And a dam holds back an enormous amount of water. In fact, we were just camping last week. We drove over a dam, and it was really cool. We saw the overflow, the intake pipe. We saw this, this lake. It wasn't a huge lake, but it was sizable. And then we looked on the other side, and we saw what's on the other side. of it. You saw the little river. You saw a little bit of water going out of the dam. Not much, but a little bit. And so the image I want of a dam is what God does to the life of a believer. That he puts an unbeliever alike. He puts a restraining hand on the heart of desperately sick and sinful people. He says, if, I, if that hand wasn't there, you would sin nonstop. And so, out of the common grace of God, I will put my hand on your life and I will stop you from sinning as bad as you want to sin. Now, like a dam, some of that sin still goes through. God does not stop that in sin entirely. We still sin in our life. But because he restrains us from sinning as bad, he makes room so that we can do good as well. And so that believers and unbelievers alike, we are capable of doing some objective good in our life. Now, does that objective good save you? No. The little sin that you do, even though it's not as great as the sin you could be doing, is still enough to condemn you. But I want you to keep in mind that there is a restraining hand of God on our life. And we see that in the Bible again and again. One of the most clear examples of this is in Genesis chapter 20. In that chapter, I'll just refresh your memory, Abraham's traveling with his wife Sarah, and they stop and there's this local magistrate, and Abraham's a little worried. He's like, I got a good-looking wife here. And he thinks, well, this, this, ki- this local king might look upon my wife 
and take her as his own. Uh, so, you know, he might kill me and take Sarah as his wife. So they lie and they say, well, this isn't really my wife, this is my sister. And so the king thinks, oh, I, I can go ahead and, and put the moves on this uh, gorgeous lady here. But he doesn't. And the reason why he doesn't is because God restrains him from doing that. In fact, God comes to him in a dream and tells the king, he says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That you were almost going to sin against me. I restrained you from that. I want us to imagine how many sins we could be committing in our life if God was not holding us back from the full force of our sin. It's, it's very humbling when we think about that. Every week I think about all those sins that I was on the verge of doing and God struck me down, convicted me, used somebody else in my life, did something to restrain me from that sin. And I praise God going, thank you God that I did not sin greater than I already do. We need to be like King David in Psalm 19 when he's praying for the restraining hand of God. He prays, Lord, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Or as we sometimes pray together, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, deliver us from the sin that we were about to do. And that's why we want to pray for this restraining hand. Now this is what brings us back to Pharaoh. This is how we can understand this verse. Now we start with the corruption and the pervasiveness of sin, but also that God has a restraining hand on the lives of all people, and they holds them back from sinning as great as they could be. So I'm not going to beat around the bush anymore. When God hardens the heart of the individual, when the Bible tells us he hardens the heart, what he's doing, and use our metaphor of a dam, is he's opening up the floodgates. As he's saying, I am no, I'm removing my restraining hand from your life, and I am now going to let you act according to your will. I'm going to let you sin as greatly as you ever want to sin. And that is what he does to Pharaoh in this encounter. God is allowing Pharaoh to indulge in as much wickedness as he possibly can. He's becoming a glutton in his wickedness. He's feasting and dining and sinning as great as he's ever wanted to sin. And it is good that God does this in this moment. And that's what we struggle with. And struggle with it. Take this passage and really wrestle with that God sometimes allows wicked people to become far more wicked than they ever could become. We can look around in the news today. We can look in the, in the breaking news last night. We can certainly mention an individual in this world who is sinning greater than we've ever thought possible. and seems to not have a restraining hand upon his life. We can look at CEOs. We can look at people in power that we go, how are they this wicked and this corrupt? Because God, in his goodness, according to his will, will sometimes remove the restraining hand and harden that individual's heart and allow them to sin. Romans 8, 9, 18 speaks to this. When Paul writes, So then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. It is good in both cases that God shows mercy to this person and hardens this person. 
for his will and his plan. Now, before we start weeping over Pharaoh, let's not forget that Pharaoh is not an innocent. He was not walking down the path of the righteous and would have done good things if God just left him alone, if God kept that restraining hand on his life. He was a terrible person who had already sworn allegiance to Satan. He had already done, blasphemed God, and God was now letting him do whatever he wanted to be. One more note about hardening hearts that should cause us to think in a very somber term. That this is exactly what God does to every single individual who goes to hell. That God removes his restraining hand because he shows no common grace to those in hell. And those in hell don't stop sinning. In fact, they sin, they engorge themselves with sin. They sin more than they've ever sinned in their lives. Imagine hell full of pharaohs. That is what we're saved from when Jesus Christ redeems us. And that's what we should be falling down on our knees to thank God for. Now, why, why, you ask why. Okay, God, that's what you're doing, but why did you harden Pharaoh's heart? Why did you allow, open those floodgates, allow him to start sinning even more? Well, part of the purpose of this was to make it as abundantly clear to everybody, Egyptians, Israelites, Moses, Aaron, everybody, that there was no possible way for the Israelites to be freed except for the hand of God. That at this point, Pharaoh wasn't going to free them. He's indulging, indulging in his wickedness. That Moses and Aaron can't use some flowery language or strike up a revolt. That the Israelites can't save themselves. The Egyptians weren't going to let them go. That God is stacking the deck against himself so that when it comes to this moment of a miraculous deliverance, there's no question in anybody's mind that it is the Lord God who does this and nobody else. Another reason why it's actually wonderful for us to study the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is because it drives us to the question of, then what happens to me? What happens to me? Because I'm desperately sick too. I have a heart that's been hardened by sin. I have a heart that wants to sin greatly, and if God wasn't holding me back, I would be just as bad as Pharaoh. So what happens then? Well, a heart that's saturated by sin, that's partially restrained by the hand of God, can't be fixed. It can't be fixed. It can be replaced. And that is what the Bible talks about. God says, I want to come into your life and give you a heart transplant. What you have before, it's not working for you. And I can't work with that. I need to give you a better heart. And this is what happens when you commit your life to Jesus Christ. Two verses, one from Ezekiel. Ezekiel speaking for God, for Christ, when he says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove this heart of stone, this hard heart out of you. And I will give you a heart of flesh. No longer will we have a hard heart and be a Pharaoh. We'll have a heart of flesh. And then the prophet Jeremiah also says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God and they will return to me with their whole heart. You see, the Bible keeps going back to the heart again and again. It's the core of who we are. It's what we desire the most in our world. 
We can't desire God until He puts a new heart in us. And we have to ask Him for that. What Pharaoh needed more than anything else, what we need, is a new heart, a soft heart. To know the Lord, to call Him ours as He calls us His, and to chase after Him with everything that we're in. It's far too late today for Pharaoh, but it's not too late for us. It's not too late for anybody who reads the words of Scripture and goes, I don't want this. I don't want somebody to say, my eulogy, that he had a hard heart. I want them to say that he had a hard heart, but God gave him a heart of flesh. We can see where our hard hearts would lead us. We can ask God, if we haven't already, to take out that sinful nature, to remove it, and in its place, put in His grace, His righteousness, His Spirit within us. These are the hearts that serve the Lord with gladness. And they make rejoice when we open up Scriptures and when we serve Him and when we know what our purpose is in our life. Let's not have the heart of Pharaoh. Let's have the heart of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is a hard teaching for us that we come to today as we wrestle with Your sovereignty, why You do what You do, and how You have complete control over all things Lord, we look upon your wisdom, we look upon your goodness, we look upon your promises and how you are faithful to your church. Lord, let this be a warning to us as we look at the heart of Pharaoh, knowing that that would have been our fate. Maybe it still is for some people who have heard these words, but Lord, they're resisting you. They think they can still be good without you. Lord, please convict their hearts. And for those of us who are saved, Lord, humble us in our lives that we know there's still sin there, but you are continually regenerating our hearts, transplanting your goodness into us, creating a desire to follow you. Lord, I pray day by day, Lord, there would be less sin and more you in our life. And we look forward to that day where we will be fully glorified, where the transplant will fully take place, and we will be good forevermore. Lord, in all these things, we thank you and we praise your name. Amen. To reach out to Pastor Justin, email him at pastor at knoxepc.com. Our mailing address is Knox Church, 2595 Elmwood Avenue, Kenmore, New York, 14217. Join us for worship Sundays at 1030 a.m. either at Knox Church or on our live stream at facebook.com forward slash knoxepc. Past sermons can be found at knoxepc.com forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.